Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskan. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you for the rest of the week. Michael will be back in the hot seat next week. Well, a very busy program between now and 11am. If you want to get in touch, the LMFM text WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. Now, to kick off the program this morning, you may have read in the papers, indeed you may have heard on the radio elsewhere, that uh, Bertie Ahern, former Taoiseach, uh, remarked last week at a sitting of the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement that there wasn't basically a hope in hell of a united Ireland if a border poll took place uh, at present. This is what he had to say. To go out and have an election and say, well, we don't know how we're going to deal with the National Health Service between um, the North and the South. We don't know how we're going to bring together the guard. We don't know how to bring the courts. I mean, I'll tell you what the result of the election will be now, and I won't charge anything for the advice. He said, wouldn't have a hope in hell of passing. Now, there are some people who think it would. I don't think it would, because you'd have a debate, you'd be here debating it, and sure people, after a few days, would see that, 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 that it's, a, it's a lo- illogical to do that. So there you are, according to Bertie Ahern, and he should know it's illogical to hold a border poll on the unification of Ireland. To discuss this, I'm joined on the line right now by Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath, who is actually the chair of the Joint Oireachtas Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, and Pather Tobin, leader of Ain2, TD for Meath West, and indeed a former member of Sinn Féin. So Pather Tobin, let me begin with you. Isn't Bertie Ahern correct that any call for a border poll is simply immature? Well, first of all, um, we don't have government by speculation. Uh, We have government by democracy. And government by democracy means that we ask the people uh, the answers. We can talk about and speculate forever and a day on whether or not a border poll will actually pass. 
The only way can we can be sure is to actually hold a border poll. Now, things have changed in the, in the north of Ireland radically over the last number of years. So we don't have a, a unionist majority in the Westminster elections anymore. We don't have a unionist majority in the Assembly elections uh, anymore. Uh, indeed, uh, we see in the uh, census just gone by that um, we have a change in the demographics now. That, and there is no, let's say, unionist or Protestant majority in the north either. And so the, the, the demographics have changed significantly, and many polls are showing that uh, the gap between those in favour of the Union in Britain and those in favour of a united Ireland uh, is getting smaller all the time. So I agree with Bertie in terms that there's a lot of work to do, and, and don't get me wrong, uh, he's right on that regard. Uh, and, you know, we in AIM2 have been pushing the government for a long period of time to hold a New Ireland Forum, which would bring together political and civic society north and south, so we can focus on, you know, the planning necessary to get um, uh, a United Ireland put into place. I did a report a couple of years ago um, in the Oireachtas. It was the first report on the All-Ireland economy ever written uh, since partition, believe it or not, uh, in the Dáil. And <clears throat> I interviewed about 100 people uh, from different backgrounds, unionists and nationalists, but also trade unionists and business people, uh, farmers and people in, in civic society. And everybody agreed that if we fund together, if we deliver services together, um, and if we plan together, those services will be better services and, and will improve people's lives. Um, but they would also have the effect of making sure that we start to develop on an all-Ireland basis. Um, and I agree that that's what we need to be doing. <clears throat> we need to be looking at you know, spatial development. Uh, instead of two um, jurisdictions planning it spatially back-to-back, we need one spatial office on the island of Ireland that is working out where the roads should be built, where the rail lines are going to be built, and where the electricity services are going to be built. So, you know, Bertie is right in, in terms of there's a lot of work uh, that we need to do to start planning. But I, I honestly believe that we are now entering a period where the conditions exist uh, in the north, where democratically and peacefully we can realise uh, a united Ireland and fulfil the objectives okay, well, of many l- generations. Let me put that question to Fergus O'Dowd. Fergus O'Dowd, since 1998, what have successive governments down here done to make the Republic of Ireland attractive to unionists up north? Well, that's a very obvious question. And clearly, our economy is very stable. Uh, we've improved our um, standard of living. We're one of the most, uh, we have a huge number of people employed now, two point. I think it's 2.5 million more than ever before. So there are lots of good things in the economy. So uh, obviously the North is separate and that at the moment there is no assembly sitting. And if I can just concentrate on the Good Friday aspects and just respond to Padder, in, in the actual Good Friday agreement, there is provision for a border poll. Now the weakness of that provision, which was made 24 years ago, is that it is up to the British Secretary of State to decide when such a poll would be held. Um, but um, I think Bertie Hearn said last week at our committee meeting that he wouldn't have a problem with a border poll in 10, in 10 years, neither would I. <clears throat> but I think the most important thing of all is that any border poll, you would have to have worked out in advance uh, You know how the economy would work, how the health services work, how the police services would work, you know, how, how, how everything would work. And if you have a border poll without working through all of those economic, social, political, transport, energy issues, it, it, it won't pass. So I think the key thing is, and I think Bertie said this, 
is to continue all of the work that has been done. Most of it at the moment has been done by academic institutions, north and south, and it's very useful and very helpful. Okay, but Fergus, just let me... Sorry, just one second. I just want to make this point. At the end of the day, you Mm. must have unionist buy-in to United Ireland or a new arrangement, north and south, because if they don't consent then it can't happen. Uh, and that is the key thing, is to ensure that the unionist voice is bought into this whole process. And that's what the big task okay, is. OK, but I have to put the question to you. I spend a lot of time up north uh, with Euro News. Brexit has kept me sure. busy for the last number of years. A number of middle-class Catholic business owners I have spoken to said that they look south and they see housing out of control. They of see, course, for yeah. example, yeah. they see, for example, insurance costs, the second highest in Europe after the Netherlands. They see doctors and dentists charging twice as much for their services. They even see little petty things which mean a lot to individuals, like charging people to park their car in a hospital. And what they say is that the Republic of Ireland is a high-cost economy. Why join up for a united Ireland when, in fact, they have more disposable income in their pockets at the end of the month by remaining under British rule. Isn't that... Uh, well, uh, it's uh, also true that social welfare payments are much higher in the South. You know, maybe you forgot to mention that to them. You forgot to mention them that there's huge investment in education. Look at what's happening in Drogheda in the last week. You have 4.2 million uh, investment in, in, in apprenticeship education for the region. So uh, uh, that's a very one-sided view you've given me. Uh, but that's, think, that's, that's so, a reflection... Can I, you asked a question. Yeah, sure. I, I, I would like to answer it if I can. I mean, the key thing about United Ireland is, 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 is the big picture. And yes, we have to have a better health service. And that's why, I know you wouldn't necessarily be aware of this, that's why there is an All-Ireland uh, movement to have an All-Ireland Cancer Health Service. That's why you have a movement to have an appropriate third-level institution, north and south, that, 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 that Simon Harris is working for. So, and, and if you look at the proposals in relation to, you know, the, the transport issue, um, there's huge investment going into that. And most of all, and this, uh, the actual shared island unit is holding meetings north and south, attended by hundreds of business people and ordinary people and employed and unemployed people <coughs> talking about how their communities can improve. And o- over the next, it's, it's, a year, it's a year since we said we're going to spend you know, uh, something like 500 million in investment in Northern Ireland cross-border projects. So, so I, I, you know, these are points that, you know, that need to be made as well. Okay, well, uh, let, let me put that, let, let me put those points uh, to Pather Tobin. Pather, are you satisfied that the governments here in Dublin or in the Republic since 1998 have been doing enough to make the Republic of Ireland attractive to unionists? Well, first of all, I would say that the governments since the Good Friday Agreements uh, haven't done very much in terms of building that All-Ireland economy or uh, increasing the level of All-Ireland cooperation. They're the practical things that can be done, and they can be done now. There's, there's nothing stopping, um, you know, a, an All-Ireland ambulance service or, you know, an, uh, an All-Ireland uh, university uh, system or uh, an education system you know, that shares the same curriculum. There's nothing stopping that type of work. That work would benefit people. It would mean the costs would be less. And it would mean that on that sunny day when there is unity, transition would be easier. But can I just point to one thing? Self-determination is one of the key components of economic development. So when we were under British rule in this part of Ireland, um, we had 
uh, obviously the, the famine happened where a million people died, a million people were forced to emigrate. And it was very clear to the people of that generation that if we stayed under the rule of, of Britain and didn't have self-determination, it was a life and death issue, it was an economic issue of massive importance. And the same is actually happening in the North. The North is suffering most on these islands in terms of, of, of the economy, in terms of poverty, in terms of investment and economic growth. Because London doesn't care about the north of Ireland. Actually, the Tory government traditionally just focused on the home counties. Even the north of England and Scotland never do well uh, in relation to London governments economically. And that's why Scotland wants to go on its way as well. I believe there's no doubt that if we can obviously start to determine uh, our economic future together on the island of Ireland, it would actually lift many people out of poverty. Like The people of, of, of Newry are just as bright as the people in, in Dundalk. The people in Dungannon are just as hard-working as the people in Monaghan. And the people in Derry are just as enterprising as the people of, of Letterkenny. The difference between North and South economically is they don't have self-determination. And, you know, recent times have shown you that the North is a dysfunctional state. It's not working. And we see that in terms of a, the Stormont Assembly being literally cancelled uh, for so long. And that's, biting, that's harming people's lives in terms of, of their ability to live. If you look at the budget of the North at the moment, there's major holes all over the budget because they're getting a block grant from London. And London is, is drip-feeding investments into the North. And they can't continue along that route. Um, you know, um, the British Columbia, through a guy called Kurt Hubner, carried out modelling on what an all-Ireland economy would look like. And these are the same people that did modelling for, you know, what a united Germany would look like. And in their view, uh, within eight years, the GDP of Ireland's north and south would increase by 36 billion if the north had the same economic provisions as the South and self-determination. Okay, well, just let, let me come back to Fergus. Fergus, uh, has it dawned on unionism yet that a united Ireland is a certainty? I don't think it has because they have to vote for it and we have to make sure that they vote for it. And that's why it has to be, it has to be a buy-in. You know, we can't force unionists into United Ireland. What we can do is we can set up a process uh, a new arrangement, north and south, which meets their a right, their absolute right, to remain British uh, or Irish or, or neither, and to and to feel part and fully part and have a power a power sharing role in any future uh, all island uh, government. So the other point, just to go back to your earlier question in relation to what have we done? The biggest thing we've done is protected the North from Brexit. I mean, most people in the North voted against Brexit. The British government implemented it. And we fought very hard uh, to make sure. And this is the most important thing of all. I'm surprised your business people that you're talking to may not have mentioned it here. Is that is that businesses in the North have access to unfettered access uh, to all of the European markets, absolutely unfettered, and also to the markets in the United Kingdom. Oh, absolutely. They have the best of both uh, worlds. Well, I think but- that, uh, that, that is a key point. So if they're in the business of selling their product, uh, you know, they, they have huge bonuses from what the Irish government has done. And the other huge bonus on this island is because of, because of the protocol, I know there are issues still around it, uh, we, we have ensured that there isn't a hard border, that there isn't trouble on the border, you know, and that's hugely important as well. And the other point is that trade north-south has grown phenomenally uh, since Brexit. So there's an awful lot of good things 
which have happened. No, I, I accept that. Day, you have to get the unionists to agree. And the only way you'll do that is make them an offer that they're happy to accept that doesn't threaten their Britishness or their unionism. Yeah. And, and that is our job. No, I accept that, Fergus, but I'm just making the point uh, that uh, a lot of middle-class Catholics look south and they just see the cost of everything just absolutely yeah. r- ridiculous. And it's but a bit they of must a... see the good things as well. Right? No, well, they don't. I mean, they don't. Yeah. Some of them don't. But can I well, come I mean, back to you? Right, Pather, Pather, let, let me come back to you. You talk, Pather, you talk there about the block grant. I think the British pay in about £12 billion pounds a year and they're only getting back a about five billion pounds in taxes. So, in other words, uh, Northern Ireland is being subsidised to the tune of about six billion pounds per year. Uh, in the event of a united Ireland, where would that money come from, if you like, to pay the bills? Well, first of all, just the, the that money that you've indicated there includes money paid for by the people of the North to pay for British debts, to pay for the British Armed Service. It doesn't include uh, corporation taxes that are raised in the north of Ireland that would obviously stay in Ireland in future. So, and the figure is about uh, between three and four billion euros currently, um, which would be uh, coming from Britain into the north uh, on, a, on an annual basis. But I, I go back to that point that the north, the north economy is subdued and is not working due to the fact that it is misruled. Um, by London. In a hundred years ago, the North was the economic engine of the island. So, you know, most of the wealth, most of the industry, most of the investment was happening around three counties around Belfast. And I've no doubt that if you give, obviously, self-determination back to the people of the North of Ireland, uh, and you make sure that they have the same corporation tax uh, as the South, the same economic conditions, the same access to the European Union, you know, they, they are as useful as people in the South, and they will be able to build an economy just as strong as ourselves and not reliant on on the British government uh, in relation to subvention. And the point here is that we are on the precipice of great change. Like, it is an incredible thing for this generation to have this opportunity at the moment, this opportunity to be able to, you know, um, realise the objectives of generations of Irish people in terms of, of independence and, and freedom, but also the opportunity to be able to raise the uh, living standards of people north and south. I'm sure when De Valera and Collins and Mellows were about, obviously, building independence 100 years ago, many people said, well, what about the block grants from, from London? What about you know, instability? What about this and that? But in, in truth, those people knew that Irish people making decisions for Ireland ourselves will make a better job of it than people in okay. London making decisions. Okay. Listen, if anybody thinks that the dysfunction in the Tory party and in the London government has any beneficial net benefit to the people of the north of Ireland economically, they're sorely wrong. OK, just to come back to Fergus Adad, and by the way, Fergus, I just had a, a little memory recap. Your old pal Jim Darcy in Dundalk agreed with me that convincing uh, some doubtful middle-class Catholics is going to be the key for uh, a united Ireland in the event of a referendum. Yeah, well, but but the question is, the, the question we now to, is... We have to convince everybody. Sure. I mean, but, it's, not, it's not the Catholics... Uh, I'm talking about the unionists. I mean, Catholics can be unionists as well. That's fine. Uh, what I'm saying is you can't impose a united Ireland sure, sure. on people who don't want to come in. And if you do, you'll end up with, you could end up with a depauling, typical, unfortunately, sad IRA campaign that we had here sure, sure. Uh, before. And, and to avoid that, the only way to avoid that is to get their consensus and agreement. Absolutely. And but reaching just... out to unionism, giving them space, giving them 
Give them power in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever just, we decide to but, is key. Absolutely yeah, just, key. Just to wrap it up, Fergus, I mean, based sure. on the discussions you've had in the Oireachtas and from various meetings, and we've had Ireland's future events happening around the country, realistically speaking, when do you think there will be a referendum uh, on unification? Well, I think the, the, the Good Friday Agreement says that it is up to the actual Secretary of State. And I suppose that person will have to form the opinion uh, that it will pass. But as Bertie Hearn says, there's no point in having a vote if you haven't your homework done. The Scottish independence referendum fell because they hadn't worked out the economics of it. So really, however, what I'm saying, and I agree with Bertie Hearn on this, is that we have to work out all our policies and get buy-in from unionists to support them and talk about what would the Federated Ireland look like? Would you have a separate Northern Parliament? Would you continue to have a separate police force? There are all sorts of issues sure. out there that we have to solve. So when we've done that, and there's no reason it can't be done within 10 years. Okay, well, very briefly, Padre Tobin. Say yes. Yeah, but see, I, I think much of that work can be done now for a start. So, like, very no briefly, Padre, when do you think it's going to happen? It's been done. I, I, I believe it can happen in the, in the next five years. That definitely the conditions uh, are available. People in the north, even from the unionist community, are so fed up with what's happening in terms of Brexit, in terms okay. of uh, the Tories, that dysfunction. And we can start the, um, the, the, the working together north and south, the, the, the delivery of services together north and south now, that would mean All that right. when unity comes... That transition is easier. Okay, so Fergus Adad says 10 years, Pather Tobin says 5 years. We'll uh, wait and see how things evolve over the coming years. That's uh, Fergus Adad, Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead, Chair of the Joint Oireachtas Committee on the Implementation of the Peace Agreement, and Pather Tobin, Leader of Ain't Two and TD from Mead West. More to come, we'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sorry about that. Forgot to press one of the buttons here. Yes, um, just uh, moving on to our next item, and it is that uh, if you're a diesel motorist uh, like myself, uh, you may be aware that the average price for petrol across the country remains at €1.84 per litre, while diesel now stands at €2.02 per litre. That's uh, 4% more expensive than last month. Now, we saw a reduction in the price of diesel in the last number of weeks, but it seems to have jumped up again. And to explain why and what this all means for motorists, indeed uh, diesel motorists like myself. I'm joined on the line right now by Paddy Common, who is the Head of Communications with the Automobile Association of Ireland. Uh, Paddy, the price of diesel has taken a 4% hike. Why so? Paddy is not there? No. We're trying to find Paddy. It's uh, turning out to be one of those mornings. Uh, A couple of gremlins in the system. Uh, By the way, coming up a little bit later on, Uh, I'll be talking to Jed Nash about data centres. Apparently they qualify for a payment to help with their energy costs and uh, there's a lot of concern about this because many people would argue that in fact uh, they don't need uh, any subsidies from the government to uh, pay their bills but uh, it's something that's causing uh, a lot of concern with left-wing parties. Now to go back to what I was saying, I was saying that the average price uh, for petrol across the country remains at €1.84 per litre while diesel now stands at two euro and two cent per litre that's a four percent hike paddy common of uh, aa ireland why has diesel gone up it's a case of supply and demand ken we have seen europe pretty much awash with petrol the supplies of petrol are fine but paddy seems to have disappeared yes we we lost you there for a second paddy go again we're having awful phone problems this morning but uh, sorry diesel um diesel traditionally came from russian oil so we were seeing um, lots of countries across Europe, especially ourselves, 
backing away from Russian oil. And the result is that the supply of, of diesel products has become a little bit uh, thinner on the ground and, and, and the result is the prices have gone up. There's no supply issues now, let me clarify that, but the price of, of diesel has been increasing because of, of costs of, of, of getting it and costs of refining it as well. So um, while petrol prices have remained uh, stable and stagnant, diesel has been increasing and that's a 4% increase just in the last month alone, which is, um, which is concerning enough. Um, traditionally, diesel has always been cheaper than petrol. Why has the, uh, if you like, the process of delivering diesel to the forecourt suddenly surpassed the price of petrol? Again, it's down to the cost of refining it. When, um, when you know, a lot of the sanctions have been put in place to back away from Russian oil, uh, so to have the refineries to actually make the diesel product. And, you know, we've seen reports that some of the refineries now who are making the diesel product are making multiples of profits from where they were before. So in some cases, unfortunately, some of the refineries are capitalising on the situation in Ukraine and actually making more profits. Uh, And that cost is just ending up being charged to you and me because, uh, you know, that's where where the end point of the supply chain, if you like. Well, now we know if the Green Party had their way, nobody would be driving uh, diesel cars at all. How much is the tax take on a litre of diesel for the state? Well, it's, it, it can be it can be f- between fifty and sixty percent. Um, it's it's significant, but you know, obviously that there's you know there are reasonably sound environmental reasons to back us away from all fossil fuels. But that's all very well and good for people who can afford to move to the likes of EVs, which you know, are obviously heavily subsidised but are still incredibly expensive. You know, there's no such thing necessarily yet as a very cheap electric vehicle. So unfortunately, you know, while we with the AA and, and many others would, would say, look, we, we support the move away from fossil fuels, unfortunately, the reality is for a lot of people that they don't have a choice because in some cases, especially in our own region, there aren't adequate public transport alternatives to the car. Well, on that very point, the increase in the cost of diesel, is this in any way adversely affecting the sales of diesel cars? I, yeah, we've, we've, we've massively seen a move away from diesel cars. It's not necessarily down to the, the direct price of diesel, but the price of fuel in particular, and that's been borne out by surveys we've done, is increasing the move away from petrol and, and diesel cars and into electric vehicles. So we've seen an 80% increase in sale of electric vehicles compared to last year alone. And, that, and you know, surveys we've done are saying, like, while it's, it, you know, the, a byproduct is that it's better for the environment, the primary reason people are moving to EVs is that it saves money. I see in your press release that uh, AA Ireland members can avail of three cents off a litre from Circle K via via the AA Ireland app. Uh, Surely that suggests that if Circle K, for example, can afford to knock three cents off a litre of diesel, uh, that suggests that uh, the likes of Circle K and others are making very handsome profits. Would that be the case? Uh, well, I mean, in the case of that, that's a, that's an AA initiative, so it's, it's that's something that we provide for our AA members. So we're we're ta- we're taking the pain on that one, Ken. But um, but no, I mean, the, 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 there is a, you know possibly a bit of wiggle room, but generally the perceived wisdom is that um, the petrol retailers here aren't making a huge amount of money on the fuel. 
what they're making the money on is the coffee and the sandwich. So that's why we've seen such a growth in the the, the retail spaces uh, because because you know the actual profits on the on the fuel alone is is thought to be. I don't know. I'm not close enough to it, but it's thought to be. Um, very little compared to what they make on, on the cup of coffee. Uh, in the bigger picture, and I don't know how up to speed you are on this, uh, we've seen a lot of Western countries dependent on oil imports from Russia. Um, are you aware of what's being done to charm the Saudis to reduce their costs and indeed to get them to produce more? Well, uh, there has been quite a bit of pressure on the OPEC countries to produce more. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're still looking at a legacy effect from the, the COVID period where um, they got their fingers burned, so to speak, because there was such a dramatic drop in production. We're not back to the levels there are yet, and there has been pressure both internationally and obviously from the United States to increase the OPEC uh, levels. And, and a byproduct of the, of the fact that the supply, especially for diesel, isn't uh, where it should be is, is, is a result of, of, of the OPEC countries just not doing what they're doing yet. There still is pressure to do it, we're just not seeing that happening yet, Ken. Finally, Paddy, and very, very briefly, can we expect the price of diesel to increase further? It's hard to predict, but um, given what we're seeing at the moment, if if it continues in the trajectory we are, we would we would say that it, it, it's, it's a strong possibility. Um, so I would I would imagine petrol prices will remain reasonably stagnant, but we, we you know we could potentially uh, see um, see diesel increasing for now. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Obviously, it's something we'll return to in the weeks and months ahead. That's uh, Paddy Common there, Head of Communications with the Automobile Association Ireland. And apologies there about our difficulties with the line. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Finance Minister, Pascal Donoghue, has defended the eligibility of data centres to avail of the government's energy subsidy scheme, but said he did not expect them to apply. Now, the temporary business energy support scheme announced in Budget twenty gives grants worth 40% of the increase of the bill to businesses that can show the unit cost of their energy bills has spiked by at least 50% compared to last year. It seems like a very generous uh, bailout, but one person who's totally opposed to it is Labour TD for Loud and East Mead, Jed Nash, and he joins me on the line right now. Jed, you're opposed to this bailout package. Why so? Well, I'm opposed uh, to the uh, notion that um, data centres um, owned by multinational corporations, very wealthy organisations, would be enabled to have access to a scheme that really should be more targeted at um, indigenous uh, Irish enterprises, companies that are uh, working in the everyday economy, retail hospitality businesses, manufacturing businesses and so on. And they will receive uh, the same kind of quantum of uh, support to a maximum of €10,000 each month uh, and you, you set out very succinctly there Ken the thresholds that are going to be applied so in other words if you uh, if your bill uh, goes up the unit cost goes up 50% compared to the reference period of this time last year you'd be paid 40% um, percent of, of the difference now uh, there's lots of businesses in Louth and Eastmead who have contacted me over the last few weeks to tell me that that in itself is inadequate so our view is that it's quite perverse that big organisations like um, you know your, your Facebooks Amazons and so on would in theory be um, 
allowed to apply for this scheme. They don't need the resources. Uh, I think that's clear. Uh, and also they are massive consumers of uh, electricity. I mean, we know that the electricity demand for data centres has actually tripled since 2015. And about two thirds of the increased demand that we expect over the next four to five years will actually come from data centres. So uh, it's quite perverse that uh, these organisations will be permitted to apply for such a scheme. And even if they are, if there's a legal difficulty in excluding them, what we've been arguing for since before the budget, and we included this proposal, uh, Ken, in our alternative budget proposition just a few short weeks ago, that there would be a surcharge or levy placed on the data centres at €10 per megawatt hour. Uh, That would generate about €40 million, which could then be dispersed to the businesses who actually need it. Uh, what would you say to the government line of thinking that when it comes to attracting outside companies into this country, that the government has to keep them sweet, it has to look after them, it has to mollycoddle them, simply because the big data centres may say, well, you know what, uh, we're feeling the squeeze here, but if we relocate to Estonia or Latvia or Hungary, uh, our costs are cheaper, they'll be more profitable, so we're out of Ireland and therefore there goes the jobs and that then puts extra pressures on the supply of electricity uh, here in terms of of uh, the data that's provided and so on. Um, What would you say to that line of thinking? I'm not opposed, uh, and and nothing I said could be interpreted as suggesting that I'm opposed to the idea of data centres locating in Ireland. One of the issues that we do have, and I don't believe, by the way, that if they were excluded from a scheme that provides maximum of €10,000 per premises in terms of electricity use, that they're going to suddenly decide that their relationship with the Irish government uh, is, is, is... irretrievably broken down. Um, the relationship between a, a lot of these companies with the Irish state, successive governments, is, is really significant and really important. And I'll tell you why. Two reasons. One is they do provide very significant employment and a really significant footprint, generally speaking, in Ireland, and they pay a, a huge amount of corporation tax. I mean, 10, 10 firms, uh, and some of them include the big ICT firms, uh, pay, pay almost half of our corporation tax. So that's very, very significant indeed. The issue that I have is that data centres have grown like topsy uh, across Ireland over the last um, few years and I don't think that data centres on this small island is a good thing for our environment, it's not sustainable uh, there is for example a moratorium on connections that Airgrid have imposed on, on the connections of, 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 of data centres into the grid in, in, in the Dublin area so we know now that uh, they're looking uh, further afield uh, and we know data centres in, in Drogheda, data centres have been developed elsewhere, they take up very significant space that could be used for employment generation for more jobs rich uh, enterprises uh, and, and we do know that one data centre uh, uses the same, consumes the same kind of electricity that was needed to uh, generate the kind of equivalent uh, electricity usage for a, a town the size of Kilkenny. So very significant indeed. Now to be fair to them, uh, they are working uh, the, the, the data centre sector on more of a focus on renewables, so providing for their own uh, energy use. But uh, they are as we speak at the moment, very big consumers of... I know, but but Jed, I have to put the point to you, I suppose I'm old enough to remember the 1980s when a million people emigrated, the economy was on the floor, uh, the north was out of control, nobody wanted to come here and set up shop, so to speak, and people were saying we should offer incentives for these outside companies to come in here and set up businesses and contribute to the Irish economy. And what you seem to be proposing now is that 
people who do set up these data centres, whether they come from America or Germany or wherever they come from, you're, you're sort of saying they should uh, not be given the VIP treatment. And the point I'm making is that that in itself could persuade them to leave Ireland and go to other countries where the incentives are either uh, equal or even better. Isn't that the case? Well, no, the, the, the state itself has acknowledged uh, the um, pressure that data centres put on our energy uh, system. Um, and they've done that by uh, Airgrid, uh, the, the, the state body, uh, imposing uh, a moratorium uh, on the connection of, of new data centres into the grid. So there is an issue here. I mean, experts say this, uh, government uh, appointed experts say this. Um, there's been a lot of to toing and froing between the Department of Enterprise, IDA, Airgrid, and others, uh, the, 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 the energy regulator as well, in relation to actually what, what can be done. So we need to be sensible here uh, and we need to make sure that you know we've got, we're generating sufficient electricity in a sustainable way for domestic and business use. Uh, it's the over-concentration I'm talking about. Not, I, I, to be fair, I don't, don't think anybody, very few people know more about what, what it takes sometimes on a policy level to generate jobs and attract businesses into this country than I do. I, I've spent some time doing that myself as minister. I know the importance of these companies. I know the importance of these organisations and the jobs that are generated. Data centres themselves right. are not jo jobs rich. The companies who uh, are involved in them are. They've got a significant footprint here. It's about balance, Ken. All right. OK, we leave it there. That's uh, Jed Nash there of the Labour Party basically saying that the government should not give a financial bailout to multinational companies who set up data centres in the Republic of Ireland. More to come. We'll Take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Davy was in touch, and regarding a border poll, he doesn't think that we'll see a border poll anytime soon, despite what Fergus and Pather seem to think. We cannot afford a United Ireland, he says. He also doesn't see the DUP towing the line in the near future, and they will continue to delay things as much as possible. Now, the trade union Unite, which represents workers throughout the economy, has written to the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly seeking confirmation that the pandemic special recognition payment introduced to recognise the unique contribution of frontline workers in healthcare settings during the height of COVID-19 will be extended to all non-HSE staff working in a healthcare setting, including hospital security guards and contract cleaners. Uh, I'm joined on the line right now by the Unite Regional Coordinating Officer, Tom Fitzgerald. First of all, Tom, will you just remind us how much did the government uh, promise to health workers at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic? Good morning, uh, Ken. Yes, it was a, a thousand euros promised to the health workers and many of those workers have still yet to gather. Um, um, over the weekend, you know, he put a call out that that would apply to all frontline workers, security guards, cleaners, who might not necessarily be directly employed um, within the health service executive pursuit um, see because they were in the front line. I actually, when I was speaking to your colleague earlier, um, um, I was uh, advised we're specifically going to be speaking on, on the uh, press release the United about the new living wage. Yeah, I'll come uh, to that in a second, yeah. But, but on that particular point there, um, I mean, it's, I think it's self-evident we're looking for. You can imagine. And I actually, I only had experience over the coming the recent days myself to be in and around the health service um, and, you know, the people there, um, security guards, um, cleaners, healthcare workers who are non-medical, if you like, uh, they're all it's absolutely frontline. They're there donning and doffing PPE. They're in the round patients. They're in the frontline the way any other medical, uh, uh, medical professional might be. So 
it seems utterly reasonable that they get such a payment, you know, hence the call and the correspondence to the Minister. How many personnel are we talking about that you believe are entitled to this payment? Um, I don't actually have those figures to hand, Ken. I wasn't anticipating the question, but um, I, I think it's readily available. Um, and I think uh, the government obviously would have that have that there, you know. Um, OK, well, let's talk, let's talk about the living wage then. You want it to rise to €13.85 per hour, and you're basically saying the government, uh, you know, needs to get its act together. Have uh, the Unite Trade Union made the pitch to the government, and what sort of response have you received? Well, we have, yeah. We have made pitches uh, to the government this year in terms of our views on what the, the minimum wage should look like and what a, a living wage should look like. There was a, a submission made by United Earning the Wage uh, to the government's uh, call for submissions on what a minimum wage should look like. Specifically, what we responded to was the um, the living wage technical group um, call last week making uh, having done their extensive research and I think Michael's half was on with Michael there on Friday with yourselves explaining that having done the research they believe that that figure should be 13 85 an hour. Uh, Michael Taft last week identified that on the, on the show as saying this is the minimum essential standard for just living, for just getting by. Uh, if you're fortunate enough um, to not have those difficulties and challenges to happen in life, you know, the gas uh, cooker gone, the electricity bill more than expected, you know, that figure would allow you to save around about a tenner a week. And we're making this point, um, given the fact that that's that analysis, and it's probably as early as May or June that the analysis is done in terms of what the minimum wage should look like, and, and of course, just for your listeners, the minimum wage is due to increase in January of this year by 80 cent. Uh, and we're making the point that the situation has moved on. Uh, people will understand the pressures that are, that are on ordinary people and what the next couple of months look like in terms of energy and so on and so forth. And in those circumstances, we're calling on government to announce a supplementary increase to the national minimum wage to help bridge the widening gap between the living wage that I spoke about and that statutory floor of rights. And we think that should be introduced in the first quarter of 2023, 2023 in springtime. And what sort of response have you received from the government on this? Well, we haven't had any correspondence back. But in fairness, the, the, the timeline is only in the last week we've been making these calls. Um, and this is, I suppose, start of you know the normal campaign and work that we'd engage uh, with government. We put press releases out um, and we'd engage on the public airways saying, you know, trying to bring uh, the... Pl- Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The of ordinary working people uh, in, in the world that we're in now, you can, you can imagine um, most people in the economy would have used up those, if you like, shock absorbers that they've had um, when, when things do go wrong. And if you look over the last uh, couple of years, in recent times, the energy crisis that we've encountered, COVID, of course, Brexit, um, people will be now to the pin of the collar. Uh, and uh, we know going into a period uh, over the winter months where energy will be used more, costs have increased. Um, there is uh, a narrative out there that we're moving into a recessionary period. So um, people will have used up all those extra supports and resources. And now we, we think that the government need to give a commitment to ensure that going into 2023, that people have, as we can identify it, the essential minimum uh, standard of living. Uh, 80 cent an hour of an increase seems very modest in light of the fact that the cost of milk has gone up, the cost of bread has gone up, the cost of fuel has gone up, the cost of electricity has gone up, and all that before Christmas arrives. Um, how did you arrive at that figure? Well, uh, just, just to be clear, we're, we, we haven't arrived at that figure. The, um, the government have said that the legally binding minimum wage will go uh, up to 11.30 in January of this coming year and we're making the point that that's not sufficient that the living wage tackling group has said there's a gap between what the basics of life to be met at something like 255 an hour between the difference of two and we're saying you know February March territory they should be increasing at that 80 cent to bridge the gap between those two figures there's an important distinction there Ken Okay, well, the fact that uh, you're seeking this increase and the government is not biting, uh, is industrial action something your members are considering? Well, by definition, uh, many people who are our members don't necessarily live on the minimum wage. If you're organised in a trade union, which is the starting call, of course, uh, from ourselves and you know, is that you'll negotiate above and beyond those minimum living standards. Um, so this may not necessarily apply to uh, large sections of our membership, um, but we're saying that the, the, the minimum pay and conditions of employment out there for workers should be brought up to this level of people can live on. Um, as advised by technical experts last week, there's no justification for the situation. You're right, the points you make there about bread and milk and everything. But the idea that 80 cents in January of 2023 is going to address that, not at all. And we're making the point that there should be uh, a supplementary increase to that minimum wage come the spring of next year. And of course, uh, people who are organised in workplaces, organised in trade unions, we will obviously still be negotiating to improve um, our living standards um, to our normal structures of collective bargaining. Okay, but just, and, and ultimately, that's the real solution for the way. We'll, while we put a call out for legally buying a minimum right. wage to pay, the real okay. answer for workers is right. to be organised in a workplace, of course, can you understand? Yeah, sure. And just one final question, Tom. I mean, if the government basically tells you to sod off, to be crude about it, uh, what do you do then? Well, the advice to workers is exactly what I just said a moment ago. 
join the trade union, get organised, and that's the best way to protect your living standards and increase your living standards in those circumstances. But it would be inappropriate for not, us not to uh, engage in a social justice model of our work as well. We have a number of factors in terms of what we do. That's a part of it, as well as the collective bargaining piece and fighting to improve conditions of employment by workplace, uh, by workplace and sector by sector. All right. Okay, that's uh, Tom Fitzgerald there. He's the Unite Trade Union Regional Coordinating Officer. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you probably heard in the news, the uh, government is to meet today with a uh, with the objective of trying to find solutions to the Ukrainian refugee crisis in this country. We heard about stories over the weekend of Ukrainian refugees coming into Dublin I'm basically being told there's no room at the inn. You're going to have to find your own accommodation. And many of them have slept on the floor at Dublin Airport. This is, uh, well, it seems to be a most undignified way to, to welcome people coming from a war situation. Uh, John Lannan is the CEO of Duras. It's an independent, non-profit, non-governmental organisation which works to promote and protect the rights of people from a migrant background in this country. John, first of all, of what you know, how bad is... Is the current situation. Good morning. Yeah, the, the situation with reception accommodation of refugees has become quite serious now. Um, with um, you know people now facing the prospect of being homeless after they arrive in Ireland to, to seek protection. Um, standards have been plummeting now for, for quite a while. This was all quite predictable. There's been an increase in reliance on emergency accommodation, hotels and other settings. And, and organisations like ourselves been warning about this for months and indeed senior officials, government themselves would would have been aware of it. Um, and and the, the problem is that while the Department of Children have been doing fantastic work securing emergency beds, um, there's been a lack of attention to the need to secure longer term, more sustainable options for accommodation. And that's for people from Ukraine, but also for international protection applicants. Uh, would you accept that uh, the government have been, I, I don't know if misled is the correct word, but uh, they have been lulled into a false sense of security here in that they made an offer of a €400 Euro payment to Irish families who accept refugees into their home and everybody put their hand up and says, yeah, we'll take them. And then a lot of people have had second thoughts and backed off. And this is, if you like, distorted the situation. I think initially there was a great hope that pledged accommodation would provide for a very large number of beds. Um, those have been slow in coming through. The numbers haven't reached what some might have expected um, them to be at um, for, for a variety of reasons. In some cases, it's because of the locations of the pledged accommodations. In other cases, because people change changed their minds. This is one of the options that um, we, we need to consider to continue to, to put attention on and to see if we can bring more um, rooms, bring more vacant properties in, into use. Um, because at the moment, um, the, the Department of Children are saying that they, they're likely to face a deficit of 15,000 beds by this um, Christmas. Um, so... Um, with 25% of available hotel beds already contracted. Um, 
But we do need some sort of pipeline of medium-term accommodation to create capacity for new arrivals. Sure. Well, we've reached a point where it seems there's no more accommodation places for refugees from Ukraine. Would it not be just better and fairer for the government to say, listen, lads, uh, we've had enough. We just can't take any more. Ukrainian refugees would be better off going elsewhere. At least then they don't arrive into Dublin and find themselves uh, wondering where they're going to sleep tonight. Would it not be, if you like, fairer on those who have high expectations of coming here to be told the truth? We certainly want to avoid people being homeless or or living in cold, damp tents here for for the winter. And that needs to be balanced with the fact that we have obligations, we have legal obligations, we have moral obligations to to continue to um, provide protection for people that are escaping from from war. But this, this, um, you know, we can can do better. And as I said... um, the Department of Children have reached the limits of what they can do. They've been doing sterling work in the numbers of beds that they have um, secured. I think emergency shelter for about 58,000 people over the, the months since February. But you know, they, they've been carrying the can on this themselves for the last seven months. The government now needs to look at the medium term. They need to start planning and this needs to come from the very top from the Department of the Teacher. Yeah, you talked there about the moral obligation and I have to put it to you that uh, per capita, I was looking at the figures recently, I think the UK has taken in about 100,000 refugees, it has a population of 60 million, France has taken in 80,000 refugees, it has a population of 60 million, we've taken in 55,000 refugees with a population of 5 million, in other words, pro rata, more more uh, refugees have come here than uh, France or the UK, which are two of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, have we been over generous? Have we built up people's hopes and expectations, particularly at a time when we already have a housing crisis? Yeah, indeed, we, we have a housing crisis and there's certainly a need for better long-term planning in relation to the delivery of social and and affordable housing here in this country. Refugees from Ukraine, from other parts of the world have certainly borne the brunt of that lack of accommodation. But bear in mind that politicians were talking in in February and March about the fact that we could have 100,000, some even mentioned 200,000 people arriving from Ukraine. So this um, the, the scale of the, the levels of arriving hasn't been unexpected. Um, we should also bear in mind that we, we've taken a very, very small percentage of the numbers of people who have escaped from Ukraine, if you consider the numbers that are in the neighbouring countries like Poland. So I think we, we can do better. We can start to look at, you know, we're, we're looking at um, the construction of modular homes. We can look at bringing more of the the, the vacant properties that, that are available around the country into operation. We, we've also got to to um, look beyond the types of accommodations that, that the government have been looking at already, broaden the approach. Um, there's been a focus on procurement that delivers volume, large 
size um, accommodation centres, we need to start looking at the availability of smaller accommodation options and incentivising people to to make rooms, to make um, available buildings. John, let me put this point to you. Do you get any sense that the welcome here is starting to wear a bit thin? And I'm going to read out a comment that was phoned into us there by John from Navin. And he said, quote, the Taoiseach states that he will do all he can to make sure no Ukrainians sleep in the rain. Pity he does not show the same concern for the Irish homeless who have to sleep in the same rain. John believes that compared to the conditions Irish homeless have to endure due to government inaction, the Ukrainians over here are living in the lap of luxury. Now, that's not me saying that. That's John from Navin. What, What do you say to a comment like that? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody who has managed to escape from the the horrendous situation in Ukraine is living in the lap of luxury here in Ireland or anything close to it. We've had people living in tents. We now have people who are without accommodation, who who are homeless. Um, This isn't a matter of um, the, the rights of one group versus another. Everybody who, who is here has, has a right to, to adequate accommodation and housing. I, I think the, the fact that the standards have plummeted, that more people are homeless, and that we don't seem to have the, the medium to long-term options available to us to address the accommodation crisis for any of the people in this country is certainly starting to frustrate people. Okay, let me put this scenario to you. Uh, Daniel McConnell, writing in the Irish Examiner this morning, says that the government is considering more deportations, and effectively what he is saying is that while there are genuine refugees coming in here from Ukraine, it seems there are a lot of chancers as well. There was evidence on social media, media that people were coming in here from the likes of Pakistan, parts of Africa and other Eastern European states, arriving at Dublin Airport and saying, I'm a refugee from Ukraine, please let me in, and the government has no option but to let them in, and that these people are abusing the welcome. What do you say to that? Well, there, there, there are processes um, in place already to assess applications for um, temporary protection under the directive that was introduced um, at European level for for people coming from Ukraine. There are also rigorous processes in place for people seeking asylum or international protection from from other parts of the world. And and I have read the article in um, the the examiner, which talks about tougher checks, more deportations, tented accommodation during the winter for for Ukrainians. Um, And indeed, we have asylum seekers already living in tented accommodation around the country. it's worrying that we would um, be talking about considering um, the, the fact that people who have a right to apply for protection here might be denied that right. Um, now, I know that we, we've got to ensure that there's efficiencies within the system. We've got to find ways to ensure that people are not homeless. But I think we've also got to ensure that we always uphold our obligations to provide people with the right to to seek protection here. Uh, in fairness, uh, one fleeing a warlike situation, um, w- one can only do one's best to, to ensure that they live in a, in a safe, uh, dignified environment here. But are you getting any indication uh, that when and if the war in Ukraine ends, that all will return to Ukraine or will many want to stay here forevermore? 
Well, we know from our experiences um, in the past with people who have come from, from other war zones like Syria, for example, that um, it it's not easy to return for a variety of reasons. Some people may choose to do that. But if we look at what's um, happening in Ukraine now, I'd expect that it could be several years before people would be able to return. People will have started to make routes in Ireland as well. They have to get on with education for children, um, etc. Et and, and I think we, we will have that increased bond or connection with, with Ukraine, with movements of people back and forth. But certainly in our experiences, people who are in refugee-like situations who have had to escape from, from war zones you know, are, are not in a position to or, or um, don't return to, to their home countries very soon. Uh, the fact that we've had people sleeping on the floor at Dublin Airport, uh, does that suggest that uh, the government has been a little bit shambolic in its organisation and management of this process? Indeed, we're, we're disappointed that this um, crisis wasn't averted. And I know that they, we, we were close to crisis point on a number of occasions before, particularly when student accommodation that was being used around the country was um, dr- drying up and had to return back to, to use by students. But as I said, th- this was predictable. We, we knew that people were going to continue to come in. The government knew this. Um, the senior officials group that monitors the response um, would would have been aware of this. So we, we reached a point where there were 1,050 people in City West. This was a facility that was designed, I think, for for three or four hundred people. They were already sleeping on chairs and floors. So so that that was at breaking point. We do need to quickly get other um, transit or rest centres into use so that people are at least able to to sleep someplace while waiting to move on to other more secure or or less temporary accommodation. Uh, Finally, John, I mean, we're at a point where the state is struggling to, if you like, house the refugees that are coming in on top of the 55,000 who've come in since the war in Ukraine started. I mean, realistically, in light of the accommodation provisions here, I mean, how many more, realistically, can this country take in? Well, the the, the numbers that the the government are are predicting themselves is that, you know, that they they need 15,000 more beds, they say, by the, the end of this year. Um, we know that, as I said, that tremendous work has been done to find emergency beds, to, f- to find accommodation for people already. There are further options. We know that the government is considering those. I think we, we can do it. We can meet the numbers that, that are projected to arrive. But um, we, we do need to ensure that we do that in, in a um, you know, in, in, in a structured and effective way. We also need to ensure that when accommodation comes into use, that there's engagement with local communities, that um, the, the, the welcomes that, that should be there and has been there, broadly speaking, from the start is still um, 
in, in place. We need to ensure that the standards are, are good in the accommodation centres that are being provided. But 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 really, I guess what's, what's needed is that refugees, whether they're coming from Ukraine or from any other part of the world, you know, need to have some sense of stability and security so that they can try to you know, re-establish their, their lives and, and cope with the fact that they've had to um, move suddenly from, from a war zone or from persecution and, and that they will get the sanctuary that they, they need here in Ireland. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, John Lannan there, CEO of Durris, which is an independent, non-profit, non-governmental organisation working to promote and protect the rights of people from a migrant background living here in Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Jim from Dundalk was in touch and he said, I would like to see a united Ireland in my day, but I would not like to see it rushed. Susan from Drogheda was in touch. She says she travels to and from Dublin every day uh, with her job. I have no option but to work from home. It is costing me a fortune. And she says there should be some support for those of us who have to pay out so much for diesel just to go to work. Well, Susan, I wish you well on that front. Now, as you probably heard in the news, Energy Minister Eamon Ryan has told local TD Rory O'Muraku that he doesn't think the energy provider for the Carlin Hall estate in Dundalk, where soaring gas prices have impacted on the cost of its communal district heating system, would qualify for the temporary business energy support scheme. Uh, Rory joins me on the line right now. First of all, Rory, will you just explain to listeners uh, what the issues are at Carlin Hall in Dundalk? Well, Carolyn Hall is a communal heating system. So basically, it's gas powered at this point in time. It was previously, um, you know, biofuel. Um, but at some stage, it got switched to gas when gas was cheap. It's a particular aberration that you've got across Britain and Ireland that has allowed this to happen. They've even changed the rules in in Britain, so it can't happen. Uh, the rules will change here, but like a lot of things were uh, late to the game in relation to it. But anyway, um, so literally frontline buy gas from Energia, um, they heat the boiler and the boiler then heats all the individual houses. So then frontline have a standing charge, which they say is where they take, let's say, both their profit and the maintenance costs of keeping the system up and running. And then they... They literally the the payment for uh, gas frontline take and give directly to energy without it any making any profit on it, and this all worked I suppose from a cost point of view until gas prices absolutely rocketed. There's also an issue in relation to efficiencies, um, and I know that some work has been done on this, but just to say it straight, at one point we were talking about a 50% efficiency where it would have taken 100 units of gas to give 50 units of heat. You know, so you are losing a considerable amount. Okay, well let me put the question to you this way. I mean, everybody has seen an increase in the price of gas and electricity. Uh, What makes Carlin Hall, if you like, different? I mean, everybody is experiencing price increases. Everyone is, but like long before anyone else was I, I suppose the fact is you didn't have those sort of domestic protections that people were signed up for a considerable amount of time and that's accepting that an awful lot of them have gone in the last while. We know that a huge amount of energy providers from October 1st, uh, people are 
paying or facing into huge costs from here on in particularly. But um, in fairness, when gas prices dropped at one stage uh, a short time ago, people in Carlin Hall were paying about uh, 30, in around 30 cents per kilowatt hour, but it's back up now on 42 cents, which is a considerable price. And there's a number of estates and apartment blocks and whatever which are operated in the same way throughout this state. Not a huge amount, but you know what I mean, a considerable amount. And obviously it's a huge deal for those people that are living in the likes of uh, estates like Carlin Hall. So they are paying a huge amount and there's a possibility they will pay more. We've been over and back with officials, with a number of ministers at this stage, and um, the fact is, obviously, we had hoped for some sort of cap. Like that seems to be ruled out um, in in general. Uh, the long term, even medium term fix is to change the form of the fuel. And I know that the SEAI are looking at doing a feasibility study. It would need to happen as soon as possible in relation to geothermal. And I know that wood chip is a definite uh, possibility. But, like, the fact is, the means, the grant schemes and all aren't necessarily perfect. What you're probably talking about is a third-party company coming in and taking on, hopefully, the capital expenditure, which will mean that the management company, basically the residents, will be signing up for a considerable amount of time to literally this company supplying frontline and supplying themselves. But it's you know most of these possibilities should be cheaper into the long okay. term and more sustainable. Sure, but, but in between, there's people facing huge, huge bills that are utterly unsustainable. And look, Mihol Martin had said a bespoke solution was required. Uh, I'll be honest; I said this to put it on the record with Eamon Ryan. I have spoken to him a number of times. He hasn't ruled out that there won't be a solution. So I, he knows I'm coming back to him okay. in relation to this, and I'm expecting that there will be movement. Sure, sure. Now, this is, these are privately owned houses. Uh, the uh, provider of the heating system is, a, if you like, a, a privately run company. Have you spoken to the company that provides the, uh, the heating service and said, look, what's going on here? Or have you engaged with them at all? Oh, no, I've, I've engaged a number of times. I've engaged, obviously, with individual residents. I've engaged with the management company. Uh, and I've engaged with Frontline Energy. Yeah, on more than one occasion, I might add. And, All right. and what are they saying? Well, what they're saying at this point in time is, um, well, you would absolutely hate to be working in their customer care team. Um, obviously, they are getting a huge amount of really irate people who are seeing bills that they cannot pay or will have huge difficulty in paying are worried about not even the bill that they have in front of them, but the next one that's coming. You know, we, we've often talked before when we were dealing with Carolyn Hall of bills that were on a level of a mortgage payment, repayment. So um, the fact is what they said, they had hoped that something like the TBES um, would provide them possibly with some element of um, as I say, monies from the state, which they could then pass on to the residents. And, and that's the only reason that I've been looking at anything like this. We know it's 10000 per month, and with the possibility for places that have uh, multiple, well, it's generally working on the basis of, uh, let's say, um, 
the likes of areas where they would have multiple premises, which obviously frontline would. Now they're talking a max here of of thirty thousand, you know, per per month. But look, what we really need here is an element of bespokery, and it's not beyond the possibility the government could deliver a system that would actually work. Oh, an awful lot of these uh, type of, um, as I say, heating systems and the communities that are operating them or having to pay those prices are looking at long-term solutions. I know that Carolyn Hall has met with multiple people. I know that there are proposals that have come through me, even one or two that need to be followed through. And I know then there will have to be obviously consultation and discussion with the wider community in relation to uh, what they want to go for. And that's grand, but that's not going to get us through right, but I, I, winter. I, maybe I missed it there, but will you just explain to me, from your engagement with the company that's providing the heating system, have they given you, if you like, a convincing reason as to why their costs are so high? I mean, are there additional costs above and beyond the actual supply of the gas? Or is this just the reality of the modern world we're living in, that everything has gone up in cost and this is just an unfortunate situation that the residents of Carlin Hall find themselves in? Well, they're a commercial operator. Obviously, the price at no point was fixed so therefore, you're open to whatever the market price is on the day. Um, so that's a problem. I've already spoken about the inefficiency of the system, which creates a difficulty and you're nearly paying twice the price anyway, which was probably fine while commercial gas rates were very, very low. But it's obviously a huge problem now. I would make an argument as well that it was never a good system to start with. So what we need to do is obviously change the fuel source. But in the short term, we need to protect people. I'm not the only person who's been in Leinster House talking about um, the fact that there are a huge amount of uh, constituents here, particularly across a number of, as I say, apartment estates and blocks in Dublin who are paying huge bills also. There is only a, a a small number of companies who do what Frontline do. Um, And I suppose the thing that I would say in relation to Frontline, they absolutely stand by the fact that they are not making any money in relation to the gas. So they just want a solution as soon as possible. So they are obviously engaged, um, as I say, with the management companies and with others from a point of view of supplying a long-term solution. But the fact is, what we need is a very short-term solution that means that people can make their payments that their bills aren't utterly unsustainable as we move to that correct place. And I would say that there's an onus on government. Government is constantly talking about district heating systems, and we know that district heating systems are a definite positive, um, and that's particularly those that use waste, heat, and others. But at this point in time, these communal heating systems are almost the Achilles heel in relation to this. So there's an onus on government, and we know that with the TBES, with a small amount of changes, it would be possible that we could provide something that would give a break to the company that could be passed on to those people that live in Carlin Hall and other places. OK, well, uh, Minister Eamon Ryan, I think, has told you already that he doesn't think the energy provider for Carlin Hall uh, would qualify for temporary business energy support um, through the various schemes that are currently in place by the government arising from the budget. So what's the next step then to try and resolve this matter? 
Well, we're, we're, we're not finished. Like the Taoiseach, first of all, had accepted at the beginning of the week that there was a need for a bespoke solution for these type of companies and particularly for those people that were having to pay these huge bills. So we need to follow that through. Um, Minister Ryan has told me and that he is looking at possible solutions and that he will come back in relation to it. So I think we can... Uh, we can definitely accept that I will be chasing him in relation to it. I will not be the only person that will be doing that. There is an onus on the Taoiseach to become involved in the conversation, seeing as he has said he sees the problem and he wants to see a solution. Uh, and I think beyond that, it is something that's definitely doable and possible. And then we move on and ensure that the SAAI can put solutions on the ground in relation to whether it is geothermal or some other methodology and that we can put a grant scheme that works because we don't have that at the minute. And that's accepting that there's always issues in relation to um, to those sort of schemes from a point of view of European rules and regulations. But I think that is something we may need to have a conversation with the Commission about because okay. really and truly this is about ensuring people have a sustainable heating system that doesn't cost the earth and then we move it to All a right. place whereby we have a better source and then we ensure right. there aren't further estates and systems like this. Okay, Rory, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD Rory Omoriku about that heating problem in the Carlin estate in Dundalk and if anybody from the Frontline Energy Company wants to get in touch to explain uh, why the costs are so expensive, well we'll uh, gladly have you on and and, uh, we'll give you a right of reply on that. Okay, we'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Paddy from Kells was in touch. He feels angry at the number of refugees being allowed into Ireland when we clearly cannot provide for them. He thinks it is utterly irresponsible on behalf of the government. John from Drogheda was in touch. He's utterly disgusted by the comments made by the Ukrainian ambassador who criticised the government's failure to provide accommodation to incoming refugees, describing it as unacceptable. John says we are doing our best and the ambassador needs to be reminded about the number of Irish people on our streets. This seems to be a a common theme coming from members of the public. Now, as you probably know, the shenanigans in London are ongoing. It's a bit like Lanigan's ball. He stepped out, she stepped in, she stepped out, he stepped in, and it's been going like that since 2016, since the British decided to leave the European Union. And, uh, of course, a new Prime Minister could mean different policies in relation to the whole Brexit arrangement with the North of Ireland and indeed the North and the South and the Irish attitude and relationship with England and so on and uh, the, the list goes on. Uh, one man who's keeping an eye on this is a spokesperson uh, for Border Communities Against Brexit, Damien McGinnity. I think, Damien, the last time I interviewed you was in a field in Jonesboro. You were on your blue tractor and the thing that was bugging you at the time was uh, Theresa May's backstop, but the world has moved on. Uh, what concerns do you have uh, about the fact that uh, Britain is about to get a new Prime Minister and the Northern Ireland Protocol bill is currently working its way through the House of Commons. Morning, Ken. Good to talk to you again. Um, well, you know, as you said in your introduction, what a mess this is, you know, for for any credible government anywhere in the world to lose a prime minister in six weeks after, you know, such damage to the economy. It appears um, this morning that Richie Sunak could be prime minister today. Um, now, 
interestingly, he uh, blocked when he was Chancellor um, Liz Truss, who was then Foreign Secretary, triggering Article 16. He realised that the UK economy wouldn't um, cope with very well a trade war with the European Union. The protocol bill is currently stuck in the House of Lords. Labour and the Liberal Democrats have put um, significant amendments to that bill, which effectively means that the protocol bill would not pass in this parliamentary term in the UK Parliament. So, you know, it's really effectively kicking that bill down the road. The talks that are ongoing between the EU and and the UK, I'm told as, as of this morning from a contact I have, in, uh, in Europe is that those talks are ongoing and they remain calm. So I would read from that that there is um, progress being made. But again, this needs political leadership and political direction and it will need a Prime Minister at some point to sign off on whatever that deal is between the EU and the UK. Steve Baker, who's a Minister of State um, for Northern Ireland, was on Sky News yesterday and he basically said that all, if you like, EU legislation that pertains to Northern Ireland has to be got rid of. In other words, the protocol has to go. That means that the movement of goods from England and Scotland and Wales into Northern Ireland, those checks at Belfast and Larnport, they have to stop and that the UK needs to get rid of its lingering associations with the EU. And that then would beg the question that if Steve Baker gets his way and he is supporting Rishi Sunak, that then begs the question, where will the border be? So what's your response to this looming scenario that could be coming down the line? Well, Steve Baker is in County Cavan this morning. He's in the Farnham Hotel taking part in the British Irish Parliamentary Assembly. Taoiseach's addressing it, um, I believe, about now. Um, Well, he's talking, Steve Baker's talking nonsense. Um, If they proceed with with what effectively is this bid and it eventually becomes law, the protocol doesn't apply, EU law doesn't apply in the north, then we have a hard border on the island of Ireland. You know, there's no grey area here because goods and products um, cannot be sold from the north because they would not need EU standards. And that's back to where we were when you were talking to me uh, on my tractor in, uh, was it 2017? Yeah, for Euro um, News, yeah. So, you know, this needs a resolution. I think the new Prime Minister uh, recognises, given the dire economic consequences that uh, are are upon the UK economy. We had a very senior investment banker on Radio 4 this morning saying that if the UK doesn't change course with the EU and the deal that it has with the EU, he believes the AMF will be brought in to manage the UK economy in the future. So it's not in their national or strategic interest. Well, Damien, just to, let me stop you there, because Friday is a particular deadline in relation to the Northern Ireland Assembly. The Tories want to get the Assembly up and running because come Friday, the management of Northern Ireland refers to, away from ministers to the civil servants. And we have a situation looming whereby the DUP don't want to bring the Assembly back to business. They say because of the protocol, but isn't the reality that some people in the DUP just can't accept the fact that Sinn Féin are now the top dogs and for some people in the DUP that's just unacceptable. Isn't that the case? 
No, no question. You have a significant hardline element within the DUP who have said openly for a long time that they will never serve under Sinn Féin First Minister. You know, they want to turn the clock back uh, in the north to the 1950s and the 1960s where it was unionist rule for, for, for unionist people. Those days are gone. Um, the Irish government um, and, in, and the United States and others, we have a Good Friday Agreement that uh, sets out very clearly what the parameters of governance are. Sure. Uh, but, but we also have to realise that people have moved on. You know, we've seen the census results. And if, if there's no government going to be formed because of, of the DUP block to this, then the only other choice that people have on this island is to look for new political arrangements. And those arrangements will have to be, I hope, um, the Irish government creating a citizens' assembly to, pl- to lay out what political structures will be in the future and, and put pressure on the British government right. to set a date for a, a border poll, for, 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 for a, a, a unification referendum. OK, Damien, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us. That's Damien McGinnity joining us from Jonesboro, spokesperson with Border Communities Against Brexit. I want to thank Marie Cairns, who produced, Maggie McGuire, who researched. Chris Murray was on sound. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning, just after the 9 o'clock news. And Sinead Brazel is next. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 660 4237. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.